Hello, and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. This week, we're talking about something new, the negotiations currently underway in New York for the first ever United Nations Cybercrime Treaty. It aims to make history, but things have not been going smoothly, perhaps unsurprising given the different approaches that UN member states, like the US and the UK, have from others, like Russia and China, on some of the key issues, which include privacy, human rights, press freedoms. But the stakes are very high. If cybercrime were a country, it would have one of the largest economies in the world. It ranges from attacks on individuals to those on entire countries and their critical infrastructure. Think nuclear plants, the NHS, as well as potentially global financial markets. So I have a terrific, uh, slightly expanded panel here today because of the um, interest in these different aspects of this question. Joining me down the line in New York is Joyce Hackmer, who is Deputy Director of our International Security Programme. How are you? I'm very well, Ron, and thank you. Thanks for joining us. Also joining me down the line is Kieran Martin, formerly the founding chief executive of the National Cyber Security Centre, part of GCHQ, now a professor at the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. Welcome. Thank you very much, Roman. Good to be talking to you. Your first time on the podcast, but not first time speaking at Chatham House. We're very glad to have your thoughts always. With us as well is Nena Afianyi Ajufo, who, among her many titles as an expert in the field, is the vice chair of the African Union's Cybersecurity Experts Group. She's also an associate fellow of our Africa program here at Chatham House. Welcome. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. Absolutely delighted. And as well, completing our panel is the view and expertise from big tech, if I can use that term, Amy Hogan Burney, who is the general manager of cybersecurity policy and protection at Microsoft. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Great. Well, thank you all for being here, if I can use a word here. Let's just start off with the basics about what we mean by cybercrime. And Joyce, I wonder if you could take us into this. What is cybercrime? So there isn't a, an internationally agreed upon definition of what cybercrime is. However, there is a tendency amongst many countries to split cybercrime into two categories. The first one is what they call cyber-dependent crimes, which are crimes that cannot happen without technology. So think, for instance, ransomware, hacking, denial of service attacks, etc. And there are the cyber-enabled crimes, which are crimes that always existed. However, their scope, their reach has been magnified because of the technology. And often in this context, we talk about child sexual exploitation online or online fraud and forgery and so on. And how much bigger have they got because of the availability of this technology? Really big. I mean, the, the issue of cybercrime is becoming increasingly a very big challenge for all countries around the world, not only because the sophistication has has increased. It's also because the technology keeps changing. It's also because crime is becoming more as a service. It's also because criminals are working increasingly with states, conducting attacks against or national security. So there are all these big risks that are now being transformed due to this technology. And uh, some recent recent statistics show that, for instance, the global cost of cybercrime in 2022 was 8.4 trillion US dollars. And it is expected that by 2027, it will go up to 24 trillion. So this is the scope of, of the problem that we're talking about here. Kieran, could you pick up this point about just trying to make sense of this enormous scale? These are big numbers by any possible reckoning. 
What can you tell us about what that means, for example, for the UK that you were looking at, but more generally? Well, in definitional terms, when Joyce was speaking, I couldn't help but think back to my native Northern Ireland in the 1970s and 80s when you had, if you were running policing, then you had two types of problems. You had paramilitary terrorism, politically motivated, and you had this phrase, which had a certain amount of gallows humour called ordinary decent criminals, where you had people just motivated purely by pecuniary interests and so forth, who presented a different problem. And cybercrime's a bit like that. So you've got this whole, if you're running, as I used to, the National Cybersecurity Centre in the UK, you've got a bunch of politically motivated, normally state-sanctioned intrusions for various reasons. Could be espionage, could be commercial theft, it could be harassment, could be digital uh, critical infrastructure disruption. Then you've got a bunch of people just trying to make money. Joy said, I think, very well, the different types of actors, you know, the online paedophiles and so forth. But I think in terms of just direct harm to UK interests, critical disruption and demonstration of cyber vulnerabilities. In the last five years, the so-called ransomware actors, the organized criminal gangs coming out of Russia, have just exponentially grown beyond anyone's initial estimation. And these are They are state-harboured, I would not call them state-sanctioned, but they're state-harboured and state-protected businesses, and they are businesses. They're run like businesses. They hire themselves out to other people. And if anyone, as indeed I'm sure Chatham House Fellows will be doing, is trying to use the British Library at the moment, you'll know that for the last three or four months you've been unable to for precisely that reason. They've disrupted healthcare, they've disrupted energy flows, and so forth. So I actually think we talk a lot in cyber theory about deterrence and acceptable conduct in cyberspace and all the rest of it. But in the here and now, and there's all sorts of different types of cybercrime, but it's really hard to get past thinking about these massive, illegal, but state-harboured, Russian-hosted businesses that are just pulverizing Western economies and are gargantuan scale on a daily basis. This is quite different in scale, is it, from when you started at the National Cyber Security Centre? Yeah. I mean, and partly that's cryptocurrencies. It's because paying the ransom has become easier to evade sanctions. And partly because it's just all of the things that Joyce mentioned have a business return. And that's what criminals are interested in. But this one has a spectacular return. So it's just gone way up. And I think in terms of the types of incidents, if you look, let's say Google any particular year or the 2020s as a whole, and just Google the most impactful cyber incidents, I would half of them on any list, and obviously these are subjective lists, so they'll differ, but more than half of them on any list will be ransomware originating from Russia or its near neighbours. And then uh, what's it like in Africa and the different African countries? But I would love to hear about the African Union group on this, which you're working with to deal with these risks. Thank you very much. Um, Just to particularly add to Joyce's point, because this is very relevant in terms of Africa, I think when you begin to look at a place like Africa, you then have to define cybercrime from more of a multidisciplinary lens, more of a societal and cultural lens. But then in, in a place like Africa, where there are various societal issues, um, cybercrime is a very deep issue, considering the fact that there are issues of unemployment and other extant societal and cultural issues. But importantly, cybercrime has now emerged as a policy priority for many governments in Africa. And I'm particularly delighted about being part of this conversation because last year, the African Union Cybersecurity Convention entered into force, as well as just this month, there was a delivery of a draft common position on the application of international law to cyberspace. So there is so much improvement um, coming from 
where we've been. Also, the African Union Commission has tried to prioritize cybercrime through the digital transformation strategy, which cybersecurity is more of a cross-cutting team and the AU Agenda 2063. But I must also say that the approach by various African countries has not been one that is harmonized. There is not so much of a prioritization. Listening to Kieran's point about how the UK has approached addressing cybercrime, there are countries where There is a difficulty to approach cybercrime at the same level because of issues of conflict and other social issues, like I mentioned in the beginning. But then impressively, um, last year, there was a cybersecurity summit that was held in Togo. And I think that sort of pushed many African countries. And of course, we got the required number of ratification. So it, it pushed countries which might not have been thinking about it as a priority because of other claims on their their attention. It pushed them to think about it more. Is that what you mean? Absolutely. And with the process at the UN Cybercrime Treaty, we can then see that reflected with the number of countries that are now participating um, in the process and the sort of arguments and um, proposals that are being made by African countries. And I hope that is now serving as a purpose for a more unified approach to addressing cybercrime. That's fascinating. And when you say more unified, do you mean that countries are actually managing to share their techniques of protection with each other? Yes. Now there is, for example, an African group. And when you look at the statements by the African group, there is now that momentum and that enthusiasm to go back after the process and move ahead from the Malabo Convention and sort of address cybercrime from a more global practice-based approach than what we've had um, in the region. Brilliant. Just tell us in a nutshell what the Malibu Convention is. So the Malibu Convention was drafted in 2010 and it was open for ratification um, in 2014. It is a regional convention that focuses on cybersecurity, but also data protection. Um, So it covers three broad ranges of discussions. But unfortunately, to add to this point, only 15 out of the 55 African countries have ratified the convention, particularly because of the issue that it merges cybercrime and data protection together. But then it allows for revisions, and that is where the African Union Commission is now pushing states to ratify, and then we move for a revision, particularly in line with the UN Cybercrime Treaty. Beautifully clear. Many thanks indeed. So, Amy, let me bring you in on this now. You work on these issues at Microsoft. And what do you say when you hear this picture of rising problems, countries doing their best to try and grapple with it? And we haven't really brought in the corporate side of companies who you know, are afflicted by this ransomware and so on. And then the call goes up for technology companies to try and do more to help stem this. What, what do you look at? Well, you know, we're a technology company, right? So the very first thing we look at is is technology. Um, so we look at how do we protect our users from these risks? And, and one thing I will say is that we have kind of a unique vantage point. There are 4,000 identity attacks per second blocked at Microsoft. And we've seen attempted password attacks increase more than tenfold in 2023. So from around 3 billion per month to over 30 billion so technological defense is really important to us. But in a way, I think it's it's interesting that I'm sitting here because we've decided that we just can't stop with just technology. So we, we have insights into cyber attacks from both nation state actors and the financially motivated cyber criminals that have been mentioned. And so we also have a view as to what laws we think might be able to help protect our customers around the world. And my team in particular, we're really well 
place to be part of this conversation because I have both the digital diplomacy team and I have a digital crimes unit. So we actually work to proactively disrupt cyber criminals as well as use our diplomatic skills in this space. So you mentioned laws there. What laws do you think might help this problem? Well, first, I think um, looking at, at laws that will allow for the appropriate sharing of information while also protecting human rights are the most important thing that we can focus on. Joyce, just picking up this point about laws and what it is for governments to do something about this, what do you think can be done? Maybe I'll answer this question by talking about what the convention that is currently being negotiated, what can it do? So as the speakers have said, cybercrime is a transnational problem. It's not confined to a geography and therefore it requires an international solution. So this convention that is being negotiated right now can be this international solution. And it can help by doing three things. First, around the harmonization of laws that Amy talked about, that you have a kind of a similar approach to how you did the cybercrime. And that's quite an important ingredient for successfully, collectively tackling cybercrime. The second thing that it can do is it can help build the capacity of states in Africa and elsewhere in the world that need it in order to better fight cybercrime. And by doing so, it can help level the, the playing field. And thirdly, and very importantly, it can help facilitate international cooperation by giving this legal basis that is required for states to be able to cooperate with one another. And cooperation in cybercrime has very different dimensions, but the most important dimension is cooperation around the exchange of electronic evidence. And I would say that this and the capacity building is the main appeal for a lot of developing countries for why they want this UN convention to succeed. Joyce, let me just ask you, what difference would this convention make to their capacity? It's a convention, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't give them more capacity and it doesn't stop other countries necessarily uh, supporting this these crimes. So there are provisions at the moment in the convention that basically require all states to help each other on a number of issues to, be, to help build their capacity. And there is now discussions around, should this be voluntary? Should this be part of this? Because, you know, once it's in the convention, this is a legally binding convention. And once states ratify it, they have to implement it at the national level, but also collectively. So that's quite an important aspect to this convention that can really help drive this conversation forward. So, Kieran, what do you say about countries, you mentioned Russia, I might add Belarus to that, who uh, host a lot of this stuff, even if they say they're not actively behind it. Presumably they wouldn't rush to ratify this convention. But what can other governments, the international community, do about the fact that a lot of this seems to be emanating from comparatively few countries? I think that is the problem and the likes of Russia and other countries um, who do host cybercrime might well uh, ratify it. but simply not enforce it in, in that case. Um, there, I'm not an expert on the Russian legal system, but there are severe prohibitions, for example, to the extradition of Russian nationals outside of the country. Well, there are prohibitions on in, in international law on invading other countries, but it doesn't stop them if they don't want to. Well, precisely. So I think there's every chance. And I think one of the one of the reasons why we struggle to get agreement on these sorts of things in a meaningful way is that there's an absence of trust in all sorts of international areas of human endeavor, but particularly in digital governance. You know, there isn't a great deal of trust. There is a suspicion in the West. This is obviously a Western uh, view from me that uh, the likes of Russia and in different contexts, China might sign up to undertakings, but then not adhere to them. There's also, and we haven't talked about this yet, there are 
We mentioned definitional questions. There are, of course, you know, um, civil society concerns about the sheer um, expansiveness of the definition of cybercrime. And you get that in dialogues between the West and more authoritarian regimes, where, for example, accessing potentially anti-regime material online is seen by some as, you know, a cybercrime. And there are concerns about some of the techniques that might be encouraged uh, under this. So I'm sounding very negative. And to some extent, I am quite skeptical about, you know, the potential for this type of agreement to uh, make some beneficial change. I do think um, if the capacity building that you probe Joyce about becomes more enhanced, there are countries who will want to do more about cybercrime coming from within their territory. And if you can help them do that, where it's a question of capacity rather than intent, which it is in Russia, they could do something about these and occasionally do do something about their cybercriminals. Uh, but in other countries, it's a question of, of capacity, then that might work. I think that international policing cooperation will work in some of the countries and could be enhanced and made easier by this. I don't think it'll work with Russia, and that's the big one. So I think there'll be some limited incremental benefits from this type of agreement should one be reached. But I'm afraid I wouldn't place great hope on its transformative potential. Other panellists may take a different view. Well, they may. Let's see. And then uh, what do you think? Is this convention going to make a difference? I think so, particularly for countries in the global south. I'm positive that, like I said earlier, countries in Africa, for example, may better prioritize the need to address cybercrime following um, the development of the convention, particularly uh, for one reason, in comparison to other processes, like the process that led to the development of the Budapest Convention, where you've seen a reluctance of African countries to ratify. This process for the UN Convention has allowed an involvement of all countries. Um, secondly, the convention faced a global South interest um, where you know capacity building is needed, um, like Joyce has mentioned. At the beginning of the process, many countries in the global South actually express confidence in the process of the convention and how it will help address cybercrime. And this is for three key reasons. The emphasis on international cooperation, technical assistance, as well as including capacity building. If you also look at the statement of purpose, countries from the global south have said, look, this would play a crucial role for enhancing how we address cybercrime because there is a specific focus on developing countries. But just to go back to Kiran's point, I also want to say that I kind of agree with him because the key issue with this will be then implementation. And I think um, Joyce had touched upon this fact that if you look at places in the global south, the approach to criminalizing cybercrime is based on cyber-dependent, cyber-enabled crimes. And many countries in the global south favor a broader approach. You would see countries like Eswatini in Africa criminalizing cyber-genocide, Malaysia cyber stalking, Nigeria, for example, crimes related to ATM, as long as it touches upon ICT and it is implied as negative by a state, then it will be criminalized. So I think about the narrow approach of the convention and what it will mean for implementation in places like Global South, which then means that it may not necessarily allow for addressing cybercrime on a more prioritized basis. Again, um, just finally to just say that if you think about the fact of implementing international conventions in national jurisdictions, the reality will be the capacity to implement those sort of rules and norms. And if you think of the lack of digital capacity, um, the limitation in infrastructure, when you think about provisions on the convention like evidence gathering, evidence sharing, data sharing, that level of reciprocity may not be reality in local contests in places like the global south. But we will see. I am hopeful, but at the same time, I'm a kind of a bit um, apprehensive, just like um, Kiran had noted. 
Kieran was indeed apprehensive. Joyce, you wanted to come in. Just a couple of points. The first one is that, you know, this convention should be seen as part of a number of measures that should be in place, right? So this can help address the international cooperation point, but there are the technical solutions that Amy talked about that are very important, how we enhance cyber hygiene so you limit the scope of crime. But there are also, we've seen in terms like to your question, how do we deal with criminals based in countries like Russia? We've seen recently the US, the UK and Australia come together and issuing sanctions against a Russian national who is accused of one of the massive uh, or the biggest cyber attacks against a private health insurer in Australia. So there are, I think we should look at it as part of the kind of a package of, of measures that need to be in place. But second and most importantly, I think, we're talking uh, about this convention like, you know, a good thing. However, it's very, very important to say that there are at the moment really very big concerns with the convention in terms of the impact that it might have on human rights, right? So we're talking about it in the sort of context that if states can agree to a uh, draft that has the right level of safeguards, that has the right sort of like, you know, checks and balances in place. This is not the case at the moment. And states are very, very divided as to how do you do that and how do you avoid having a convention that legitimize existing uh, oppressive practices that we see in different countries around the world. So do you think the convention is going to get through? get support? Well, it will depend on sort of the language that will end up being uh, in the text. The chair currently is working on a compromise draft. It was heavily negotiated yesterday. It will be negotiated again today. There are all sorts of different scenarios, so we'll see. I love these things that get negotiated, fought out word by word right through the night. So Amy and Kieran, let me come to you just at the end to look at all this, where all this is going. Amy, what do you make of this picture on the one hand of some optimism about an international agreement, on the other hand, some skepticism about whether that is really going to fly or make a difference? And I built some, again, some optimism at the regional level. Well, first, I think these convention negotiations have been really interesting because they've allowed for meaningful participation from both industry and civil society. And hearing from both voices And having so much overlap in that space is quite interesting because there's a lot at stake here. And, you know, as Joyce mentioned, really making sure that we're protecting human rights is incredibly important. And one of the big things that we've been engaged in these procedures for so long, since 2022, um, and we've really been advocating against the possibility of this treaty becoming a digital surveillance treaty. And I think that's the thing that we are most concerned about, both us and, and civil society. So the final convention really needs to focus on a clear, narrowly defined set of crimes, which can be commonly understood across jurisdictions. And if we can get there, I think that that would be a great result. You know, I know negotiations are still ongoing. And as always, nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. And so I look forward to seeing what happens on Friday. If it happens on Friday, I just want to pause on this point for a second because yes. <laughs> because what we are teasing out of this conversation is really quite different views, uh, corresponding to very different you know, parts of the, the world and their government's views about what they might want this convention to do. And we know the divisions on precisely that question of, of human rights. Kieran, you gave us your scepticism, if I can put it that way, about whether this was going to be effective. Do you think it's worth the effort? I think broadly, yes, as long as expectations are managed. I mean, to try to be positive and responding to some of the excellent points made, I think you know, at least two things that are worth capturing from this. One is Nen's point about the global south. You know, the global south has been excluded or marginalized in most digital governance talks for 25, 30 years, and that won't happen 
happen again, regardless whether it's AI governance, as you saw that at Bletchley, the big global size sort of turnout. And I think whether it's cybercrime, AI, security, whatever it is going to be, this is the way of the future. So whether it succeeds or fails, I think it's indicative of an important shift. And if, as and she has much more expertise than I do, you know, if it, the talks do reach a successful conclusion and there are some positive outcomes from that in various regions in, in the world, then that's a good thing. I think secondly, it probably will pass the Hippocratic Oath test of doing no harm. You know, there will be, you know, I mean, put it this way if there are disagreements I, I don't I think the chances of, a, of it enhancing the sort of surveillance state and so on are pretty low because countries who are tempted to do that as you were saying with you know countries that will invade other countries in violation of international law will do this anyway so I think you know the benefits if there is for example a bit more international cooperation on law enforcement on cracking down on financial illicit financial transactions you know that's a that's a good thing. I just think, however, it will probably be quite limited. And I mean, the test for me, and therefore a prudent assumption for lots of states, particularly you know, richer countries that get a lot of cybercrime at the minute, the test for me is what does it improve policing? Because at the moment, cybercriminals are largely immune from policing. Joyce mentioned the sanctions. Why did we put slightly presentational, if I can put it that way, sanctions uh, rather than real world biting sanctions on Russian criminals because you can't arrest them. And will anything change in terms of the uh, impunity with which cyber criminals can act? I suspect that's a long haul. This convention, if it happens, might facilitate it in some parts of the world. I doubt it'll crack Russia, which is the big prize. So till then, I think if it's a prudent assumption for people in charge of cyber defense, wherever they may be, to work on the assumption that policing is kind of broken when it comes to cyber crime. And you've got to think of other things. This might make a dent in it, but it's going to be a long haul. On that note, probably do no harm, I think is the phrase that, that comes out of this, this conversation. But let me not destroy the optimism that we've also had, the huge efforts that are going into this at the moment to see if there is at least some kind of common agreement. And as you said, with the Global South very much part of that conversation, as it was at Bletchley by that we were referring to the UK summit that Rishi Sunak called together on this, which had many, many countries taking part, including China. We're going to have to stop there, but our website will bring you the updates on what has happened uh, with this convention, if it happens. So with that, a big thank you to all my guests, Joyce Hackmer, Kieran Martin, Nena Afianyi Ajufo, and Amy Hogan Burney. To follow them all on Twitter or X. Also, you can now follow Chatham House on Blue Sky Social for those looking for an escape from X. All the details are going to be in the show notes as usual. And a reminder that you can find all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, all major platforms, as well as through our social media. So please do like, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. It really makes a difference to us. And to read more from all our experts or to find out more about our events, and we have a very busy year unfolding now don't forget to visit chathamhouse.org and you can find there as well the work of our international security program and our Africa program. So goodbye for me, Bronwyn Maddox. See you next week.